This is Classical Ideas with Greg Soden. Soden. Recently, I was perusing the library at school and found a graphic novel by author Samhita Arni of an ancient Indian epic known as the Ramayana, except this version is called Sita's Ramayana. Many of you will be familiar with this story about Ram, Ram's wife Sita, the monkey god Hanuman, and the Rakshasa king Ravana. Ravana kidnaps Sita, and Ram raises an army to get her back. There are a few fantastic plot twists for first-time readers and lessons for return readers that make this one of the most memorable and fantastic stories ever written. The particular version of this Ramayana, written by Samhita Arni, is told from Sita's point of view. A very interesting feature of this book is that the text was written after the artwork was done, with Arnie adding words to the scroll artwork done by Patua artist Moina Chitrakar. When Arnie was eight, she started writing and illustrating her first book, The Mahabharata, A Child's View, in which went on to be published in seven language editions and sold 50,000 copies around the world. She received commendations from the German Academy for Youth Literature and Media and the Spanish Ministry of Culture. Her second book, Sita's Ramayana, a graphic novel developed in collaboration with Moina Chitrakar, was on the New York Times bestseller list for graphic novels for two weeks in 2011. Her latest book, The Missing Queen, is a speculative fiction mythological thriller. Samhita is an alumnus of the United World College in Italy and has a double major in religion and film studies from Mount Holyoke College. She has lived in Indonesia, Pakistan, India, Thailand, Italy, and the United States. She spoke to me from India for this discussion. I had an absolute blast discussing my favorite Indian epic, Yes, the Ramayana is my favorite, with Samhita. She's on Twitter at Sam Arni, S-A-M-A-R-N-I, so give her a follow. So without further delay, here's my conversation about Sita's Ramayana with Samhita Arni. I'm here today with Samhita Arni, author of Sita's Ramayana. Samhita, thank you so much for coming on Classical Ideas. Thank you so much for having me here. Can you spend a moment introducing yourself to the audience and maybe talking a little bit about the work that you do? Sure. Um, my name is Samhita Arni. I live in Bangalore. I am the author of three books, The Mahabharata, A Child's View, which I also illustrated. My second book was Sita's Ramayana, a graphic novel that was illustrated by a uh, Patua artist, uh, Moina Chitraka. And my third book was The Missing Queen, which is a thriller based on the epic, the Ramayana. 
So my interest really lies in the area of mythology and how we interpret mythology, particularly today in contemporary India, and what kind of political implications that often carries for us today. I also teach. I teach uh, creative writing at a college here in Bangalore, and um, I used to run a. I used to have a column on um, women in myth and history for an Indian paper for uh, for a year. Excellent. I found your website, um, and on your website you have a link to all of the articles that you read. And I have to admit, I started going down the rabbit hole of your National oh. Ge- Geographic articles. Um, okay. <laughs> so in the future, we may have to do a little bit of discussion about your your travel writing as well. Um, so today, I want to talk to you specifically about the Indian epic, the Ramayana, and the characters within it, um, specifically Sita and Rama. So when did you become aware of the story of Sita? What about her story hooked your attention as a writer and as a creative person? Um, the thing about the Ramayana is that we're sort of in India, we're all sort of brought up with it from God knows what age. So the the earliest memory I have of the Ramayana is being retold a version of it and watching it on television. There was a very popular televised version of the Ramayana, but it didn't really interest me for the longest time. The other, uh, we have two major epics. The other epic is the Mahabharata. And that was the story that really interested me because it had a far more fascinating um female characters, and it seemed much more uh, nuanced. Uh, the characters weren't so black and white as in the mainstream Ramayana. There were more shades of gray, and that intrigued me much more. So the my first book had to do with the Mahabharata. But then I grew as I grew older, um, the Ramayana continued to, became even more interesting for me than the Mahabharata, because it's still a very uh, important epic for us, socially and even politically. We There are metaphors from the Ramayana that are used constantly in our politics, in even court judgments. You'll see it in reality television shows. The idea of being like the characters Ram and Sita, they're held up to be exemplars, ideals we must um, mold ourselves into, people who we should base our behavior on. Uh, Sometimes that can be very problematic, um, particularly because the character of Sita, who who is the wife who follows her husband into exile, and is abandoned at the end of the Ramayana, this isn't necessarily a reality I would want any woman to live with. Hmm. So I became much, for those reasons, I became interested in the Ramayana. And then um, what really, uh, what we've tend to forget is that there are multiple versions of the Ramayana. And today we are, we, I grew up being familiar with only one version of the Ramayana. So it came to me as a shock when I was about 22, when I came across uh, this very famous essay by a scholar, A.K. Ramanujan, um, on the fact that there are multiple Ramayanas. He called it 300 Ramayanas, but he himself did not know how many Ramayanas we have. And each part of the country, each language in India has its own Ramayana. And then if you go outside of India, uh, Thailand, Malaysia, Indonesia, countries that are not Hindu, but are Buddhist and Muslim, they also have their own variants of the Ramayana. So, and the in, there are differences in the Ramayana. Um, and these are quite interesting. Um, I also became very fascinated by the oral versions of the Ramayana, some of which are retold by uh, women who come from dispossessed or uh, disenfranchised communities, women who are oppressed. And their Ramayana, um, the versions that they sing, uh, because these are oral traditions, these are sung by illiterate women, uh, they offer a critique of the Ramayana, where we see Ram Ram as an ideal king 
in the mainstream ramayana uh, and sita as his as his wife these ramayanas really question ideas of justice ideas of what is right and wrong ideas of what gender roles are and so for that reason i find um, when i came across these uh, other different ramayanas it was almost like a shock to the system because it was so it was the same story but told so differently wow and that's really interesting to me that you just said that Ram and Sita are held up as exemplars in society. And I would imagine that they're like referred to in like politics as well. Um, Like in the United States, the Bible is the number one most frequently cited book in the, in the U S Senate and the stories of like the good Samaritan and like Jericho road, like all these like uh, legendary Christian um, stories are held up as like exemplars, in the West. And so that's really, really interesting that they're brought up so often in everyday life in India. So you really can't like get away from the stories of Ram and Sita, just like you can't get away from the stories of like Jericho Road or the Good Samaritan. Does that make sense? Yes, absolutely. Um, and I think that's very true. Uh, you know, our culture still uses myths uh, uh, to, to mold um, ideas of what good behavior, ideas of what roles are, ideas of what good and bad are. And I think that that's what the use of mythology uh, is often uh, in different cultures. So the author of the Ramayana is credited to be a sage named Valmiki. The author of the Ramayana, what is known about this sage? So, um, you know, we when we talk about the, the author of the Ramayana being Valmiki, this is the textual tradition uh, of the Ramayana. We, there is some suspicion that they might have been versions that predate this Ramayana uh, certainly possibly oral traditions, but other variants as well. Um, so what we call this the Valmiki Ramayana, and Valmiki himself has written, uh, has made himself a character in the story. Uh, so he's, he's, he's quite fascinating. There's, there are dif- different mythologies uh, that are attributed to him uh, much later. Uh, he's a fa- character in other myths as well. But then there is also this this local legend, which doesn't seem, you know, which, which seems to hold him to be um, uh, a robber who turned into a saint. Uh, so we, there is more myth than we know, uh, than history that we know about him. Um, but uh, he, he himself is a character uh, in the Ramayana. Much like in the Mahabharata, we have another sage, Vyasa, who also narrates the event, events of the Mahabharata. And uh, he too is a character in his story. So both these epics employ frame kind of narratives where the narrator themselves is a character in the story. And this really helps break the frame. So um, that's one of the the things that's very interesting about a lot of Indian um, epics is that they employ this sort of frame device, which breaks the relationship between the story being a a fiction thing and, and makes it much more immediate. Something that my students find really interesting whenever we read the um, Bhagavad Gita or the Ramayana is this difference between the Hindu scripture concepts of Smriti and Shruti. Is the, the Ramayana is Smriti scripture in Hinduism, correct? Um, I'm actually, I mean, you know, to be honest, I'm not a, a, a scholar or, or any of, of that uh, thing. I would, I wouldn't... Um... I'm, I wouldn't know enough to answer that question. That's um, that's totally fine. Whether it is revealed or whether it is heard, uh, that yeah. And okay. uh, I would also, um, 
it, you know, we have a lot of uh, discussion right now about whether the Ramayana as a sacred text. It is something that I see primarily as literature, or a sacred text or a historical text, and um, it is something that I see as a as a as an as an amazing story first and foremost. And there are many authors of the Ramayana, not necessarily Valmiki, but we also have Tulsi Das, we also have Kamban. All of them have put a different kind of flavor to the epic. Excellent. So the idea of originality or or, or this being told in one particular way, uh, being revealed in one, and and to deviate from that. Um, is problematic for me. So when we introduce these ideas of Smriti and Shruti and say that it has come directly from a divine source, it may have. Uh, I don't want to question anyone's religious opinions there, but I like to celebrate the multiplicity of voices that the Ramayana tradition has. So I, I don't like to go into the deliberate or, or or consider the questions of Smriti and Shruti. Excellent. That's totally fine. Um, so one of the things I really that really jumped out about me about your book when I saw it on the shelf at the store is that it's titled Sita's Ramayana. So it's told from the first-person point of view of Sita. What differences exist in your version like compared to like a more Ram-centric version? I beg your pardon? My, uh, this version compared to a what-centric version? Like a, like a version that centers mostly on like Rama's first-person point of view? Uh, yeah, I mean, first of all, it's, it is called the Ramayana. It is the it is the story of Ram. But uh, the I mean, and and when I you know I'm I'm talking about myself as I'm the creator of this. I'm not the sole creator of this book. Uh, Moina Chitrakar, who is the the artist uh, that created the artwork for this, in some ways she is the primary storyteller and and she's the real primary author of this this book. Um, since the artwork preceded the text and the art, uh, her she herself comes from. Uh, the Patua tribe, and they have their own variant of the Ramayana. And it is an oral tradition um, they, which is produced on these large scrolls. They sing it and they move from village to village, being oral storytellers, using the scroll and the songs to um, relate the Ramayana. But what's also really interesting about the Patua version is that it focuses so much on Sita. And it begins with Sita in the forest. Uh, there's some speculation that the Patua version may have been, um, uh, may have originated or found its roots in an earlier version of the Ramayana, which is a 16th century version written by a poetess, um, Chandrabati, which was in some cases, she's quite um, fiercely feminist. She, uh, If she was being published today, a lot of people would have a lot of problems with, what, <laughs> with some of uh, Chandrabati's pronouncements on Ram. Uh, she doesn't particularly uh, seem to think of him as a very strong character. So uh, so the Patua uh, tradition seems to come out of that, which is a, it is a critical tradition. It is a, it is a, uh, a tradition which is more pro-Sita and not so much uh, from Ram's perspective. And it's even quite critical of Ram and his actions. Okay, uh, so, Valmiki, sorry. Yeah, yeah, the Valmiki and say for the Tulsi Das versions, for example, are a very Ram-centric story. They're also connected, uh, I mean, politically in some ways with the ideas of empire and and, and rule and the state of uh, rule in society and the rule of law. Um, these other versions, like the Patua version, like Chandrabati's versions, really critique that. So the Ramayana is not merely a story about a couple and a war and a, an estranged couple. It also becomes a, a vehicle for carrying much more complex ideas about um, society, social structure, law, um, gender roles, and there are some that have advocated, you know, for for a very um, 
a, a rule of law and the, and that is the kind of mainstream ramayana the more critical the you know the patua version is implicit in its in its critique of um those ideas by by taking the side of sita okay so moina chitrakar's art was the first part of the story yes, yes. okay it, that came first yeah I, I understand. So how did you work through like creating text around pre-existing art? Like what's that process like? Uh, it's an interesting process. Um, it's, it's quite bad. It's a kind of a, I used to work in another uh, comic book company called um, Amachitra Kata. And so there it's always the writer who comes up first with the idea and then they panel it out and then it goes to an artist and then the art book's done and that's how it goes. This was completely reversal of that. The artist had done most of the artwork. And then I came on board and I tried to create text around these images and figure out how they would be placed on a page and work with a designer on that. And there were certain places where, for example, the, you know, the Patua version is also accompanied with um, song. So, you know, you'd sing through an episode. But for a graphic novel, you need to have a, a linear narrative um, and you also need to fill in all those, you know, gaps that would be covered by song. So there were a lot of instances where um, we had to go back to Moina and say, can you do some images to fill in this part? It's also, um, you know, in an oral tradition, you can sort of switch from perspective to perspective. You know, you don't have to be um, consistent all the time. So, for example, at times, you know, you would break off into Hanuman's story or you'd break off into another part of the Ramayana. But with this version, what we thought was really interesting was to preserve the immediacy of Sita's perspective and Sita's voice. So when we converted it into graphic novel, we really chose to make it very much more linear narrative in that respect. Um, we also had to introduce a few characters because, you know, for example, the most important part of the Ramayana, one of the most important parts of the Ramayana is the fact that there's there's this war that Ram has to come to Lanka to rescue Sita. But because Sita is imprisoned in Lanka, she never sees the war. So how do, how do we show the war through Sita's eyes? And so for that part, um, I had to go and borrow a character from another Ramayana, the Tamil Ramayana, the Kamban Ramayana, uh, and this is a character called Trijata. I believe she also exists in Tulsi Das Ramayana. But um, so we borrowed this character and, because she has uh, the gift of um, prophecy as well as the gift of being able to see uh, many things at once. So she was able to uh, relate to Sita what happens on the battlefield. That's the role that she has in the Kamban Ramayana. So I heard that Moina Chitrakar, she, like, she doesn't read or write. She's a part of this Patua um, culture. Um, can you tell me a little bit about your collaborative process with her? Did you, like, all was all of your interaction with her, like, in person? No, actually, a lot of it wasn't. So it's, like, it's kind of bizarre that we can't manage to pull the book together. But um, it, she had done all the artwork. And then we, I know, I was sitting in my publisher's office in Chennai. And this, this she, you know, because the Patua's paint on scrolls, they had asked her to do it on sort of, a4 sites, sheets. So then the artwork would come in and uh, there would be like captions written in the back about what this, this piece was supposed to be about. And we, uh, you know, there was a lot of back and forth where they had to call Moina and say, what is, what is this picture about? And what is that? And sort of string it together uh, that way. Um, and then eventually at the end of the process, after it was all done and we launched the book in Chennai, that was the first time I met Moina. Oh, wow. So, um, yeah. Okay, so did you get to see any of these original Patua scroll paintings? Yes, yes. Like, uh, they're how big giant. Are they? It's like I think seventeen feet long. Or some of them are. They're really long. 
Okay, wait. So is one painting up that big, or is it like the whole entire story on one giant, long, seventeen-foot-long scroll? I think they have various episodes on on different seventeen-foot-long scrolls. Um, but you know, it's it's also it's a format that really lends itself for a graphic novel because you know there's sections of it with with you know uh, each each there are different panels in the scrolls. Very cool. Okay, so. Um, as as you know, when I was telling you earlier, I teach religious studies in a high school in the United States, and I teach these stories that you've been talking about, the Mahabharata, the Bhagavad Gita, the Ramayana. What would you say, if you came to my classroom to talk to my students like in person, what would you say to my young American high school students about why they should care about and read Indian epics in their liberal arts education? Like, What do these stories offer everybody in the world? Uh, well, uh, I think, you know, I, well, what would you say if you had to come to my class here uh, in India and had to tell my students why they had to read American classics? That's such a good question. Okay, so let me try. I'll answer. Um, <laughs> so in order to, you know, understand a a place, it is essential, I think, to have a decent grounding in that place's literature and artwork, and also because if you never expose yourself to new ideas and new cultures and new texts and artwork, your your universe remains small. And to me, the purpose of life is to continually and purposely expand my view of the universe. So, if I were talking to your class in India, I think that I would say that um, reading works from other places will only make their lives richer, fuller, and will expand their view of the universe, which will then extend compassion and um, empathy uh, to all human beings around the world, not just the people that you can see with your own eyes on a day-to-day basis in your town. Well, I'm, I'm so glad that I asked you to do that because I agree with all of that. Uh, but I, I would, I would, uh, I, I, but to be honest, my answer is a little different. I think that's an answer that's, that's wonderful. And I, you know, that that's a great answer. Great. And I agree with all of it. Um, but, but to me also these, these epics um, point to what is human in all of us. Mm. Um, I think that, these stories, uh, you know, particularly the, you know, something like the Mahabharata where you have, or the, or the Ramayana where you have war and you have people fighting for concepts like honor and um, the the uh, futility of war sometimes, uh, the consequences of war, uh, what, what pushes us, desire, aggression, anger, these emotions, these seem to be universal in a certain respect. And I think sometimes these stories also offer us a way to explore our own selves, our, our own internal universe, to enable us to understand uh, what if our, our anger is unchecked, what it may lead to, um, for example, or or what happens if if you know there's frustration is 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 left is internalized within a character. So sometimes I think also these stories are great in teaching us how to understand ourselves and our own internal emotional universes. Um, but I, I also believe, um, you know, very much that, uh, the, the Mahabharata is still a story that we can see, for example, playing out even today, um, the story of conflict between 
nations that are like brothers uh, and and the kind of uh, catastrophe it can cause even in in you know recent history we have seen that play out time and time again so um, i think this story is still relevant uh, regardless of, of whether it was written um, thousands of years ago it's still happening today war still happens and the, the consequences of conflict haven't changed i completely uh, I, yeah i love that um so I have a couple lines in the book that I want to ask you about that I think segues really well from what you just said. So I was reading, and on page 91 of the book, you said, what is this war pitting brother against brother, which kills sons while fathers live? And like this reminds me of a scene in the Bhagavad Gita where Arjuna is like struggling to muster up the strength to kill men whose ambitions are still desires in their life like he's about to kill people that have a long life ahead of them do you see this ability to like consider the not yet lived futures of people as an ethical dilemma to pursuing war um is this like a consistent theme in indian literature um i'm not i'm not sure that i'm qualified i know enough about the expanse of indian literature to to answer that or or, or i can consider that uh, right now to be able to to give you uh seeing that it encapsulates all of that but i think yes definitely considering the consequences of one's actions is a very important aspect of um dharma or the idea of dharma um and uh, in the valmiki ramayana which was translated by uh, and the the version of the valmiki ramayana that i'm most familiar with is has been translated by uh, someone i regard as a teacher arsha sitar and uh, she um there's a p- part of it where um Ram and Lakshman and Sita have come into the forest and they're wearing the garb of ascetics uh but they're also carrying weapons and if you're you know familiar with the concept of dharma you, you know ascetics have a kind of dharma warriors have a different kind of dharma the, you know dharma or the purpose of ascetics is to pray uh warriors fight now ram by being in exile by accepting the garb of an ascetic is in contradiction of his dharma that he was born into and but he doesn't leave this old dharma behind he carry, he carries his weapons um the mark of his you know being a warrior with him even though he has accepted the dharma being an ascetic for these for the period of his exile and uh, sita points out this uh, and there's a description in the valmiki ramayana where they move into this uh hermitage and they have their weapons these bright shining weapons on the wall and sita points out this um discrepancy she says uh you know dharma is shukushma it is subtle it is intangible it's a very complex thing uh you know if you bring weapons what she goes on to say is if you have brought weapons of war with you war will follow you and that is what happens in the ramayana so to speak uh they have brought weapons into the forest um they go hunting and hunting is not what ascetics do it is what warriors do and uh, they invite war upon themselves so i um um you, i i think um uh, Actually now I've lost track of what your initial question was. It's totally fine. So like th- <laughs> this war that yeah. uh we seem to get ourselves into throughout all of human history. Um yeah. there's like untold numbers of people have met death in these wars that we have invited upon ourselves. And on page 113 you have a line that says that um this is for for one man's unlawful desire. Like I know that you said earlier that the Ramayana is relevant today and the line 
for one man's unlawful desire really jumps out at me. Are there any events in the world um, like today that remind you of the unlawful desire of one man like in the Ramayana? Uh, I feel like we'd get into hot soup for answering that. Um, but there is one man's unlawful desire. I feel like there are many examples of this. Um, uh, well, I think any, like, if you consider colonial conquest as unlawful desire, yes. Sure. Uh, people have to seize what, seize what there is, and that has left us with generations of uh, issues. Um, any, any, I think every, you know, conquest or or war on some level begins with unlawful desire um a desire to own or possess or hurt um and that that is unlawful to me and so ram doesn't really fight for sita's freedom in this book he's really fighting for himself like does does ram's does rama's selfish fighting teach you anything in like 2018 because he's not really fighting for her he's fighting for himself it seems like yeah for his honor or for his sense of self yeah so why does um, honor why does honor uh, first question then like honor plays a huge role in this story um why is honor crucial to understanding some of these plot twists um well honor is also very much connected to this idea of dharma i think and uh, you know you have you have a certain purpose or role that you have to play, and it uh, um, and you know because also Ram's honor and this is a very gendered thing is is lies also in Sita's chastity, and you know Sita being his wife. Uh, this is a very Indian concept that a that a, a woman's honor, a woman's chastity, all of that reflects on the honor of her family. And specifically on the honor of either her father or husband. So we have in India many honor killings. Uh, you know, when, for example, you know, girls elope or choose to marry somebody outside of their community or caste, you have um, they, they are often killed for it. So this idea of honor is very much tied into um, into into the idea of marriage, into the idea of family, and also in in, in terms of you know um, also if you if you choose to marry outside the bounds of of your caste or your community or religion, that that's also. Uh, tied into this concept of honor, which is very problematic. You also say um, in the book that I really enjoyed, there's a line on 120 that says, war is merciful to men. Can you elaborate on that for me? Because I found that line to be really fascinating. Uh, well, I think it, it goes something like war is merciful to men because, you know, they're either heroes or they just die through it. Uh, but it's the women who have to survive um, defeat uh, that they're the ones who wars are fought primarily by men and uh, it's the women who are left if you are the wife of someone who has been the loser in the war then you are likely to be raped you are likely to be sized as another man's property it has really played out fairly for women um so i, I wanted to bring in that perspective and a lot of wars have been fought over women right uh helen of troy most remarkably yeah. so uh <laughs> So, um, I, I mean, on some level, on most brutal level, war is about property, and women are seen sometimes as, as part of that, uh, as the property or the booty or whatever that is that it is to be claimed. And uh, they don't die, but they have to suffer being traded. Uh, and there's another, uh, there's the episode of the story of Tara that sort of reflects that. Um, you know, Tara is the wife of, uh, at one point, one brother, and then uh, the other brother, both who are 
kings of the same kingdom at, at different times, or the, uh, kings of the Vanars, the monkey kingdom. And uh, at one point she's married to one brother, and one point she's married to another brother, and it becomes very confusing, uh, you know, whose wife she actually is. And, um, uh, you know, she seems to have no option but to accept that. There is no point where you can say, no, look, I don't want to be anyone's wife, or I don't want to be put through this, or I want to, con- I want to be, I choose to be uh, single or, or not marry anybody. There is no option there. What's so interesting about everything you just said is, like, in the book, Rama, like, succumbs to all these, like, public whispers and rumors um, to send Sita away, even after she had passed a trial by fire. Like, why do you think that Rama would um, succumb to this? Like, does this role, does this honor come back into it? Because it seems like women um, are, you know, endlessly the victim of either war and being passed around, as you just mentioned. Um, so why does it seem like Rama is, you know, um, succumbing to these to these rumors, even though she obviously is not guilty of anything? Um, I, I, I mean, it is it is this idea that uh, I mean, uh, Rama has fought all this war, and then he sees Sita, and he doesn't know if she. Uh, I mean, how could she have not uh, been touched or been you know, raped by um, uh, Ravana? And I think it's a struggle for him to understand that Ravana did not touch or rape uh, Sita. And that at some point Sita says, you know, you know, you do not come closer than, to me than this blade of grass. Um, and Ravana seems to accept that boundary. So there's some strange honor to Ravana as well. We can't quite comprehend it. And uh, I, th- I think that's difficult for one for to Ram to understand. Uh, but it's also again this idea that you know women have to constantly prove themselves and their worth or their sense of self and their sense of value is tied in so much to their chastity. Um, I mean, Sita does not only have to prove herself by the test by fire and that to in front of an entire battlefield and you know walk through fire to prove that she is pure. Uh, and this, this idea of purity is also very problematic. But then the next thing that happens is she returns to Ayodhya and even there people are questioning her chastity because they have not been there to see her her chastity on the battlefield be proved. And it's not enough to Ram that she has been proven to be chaste. He feels that to be a good king, he must respect uh, or listen to what his people are saying and, and, and follow that. And so he chooses to send Sita away without when she is heavily pregnant and abandon her in a forest. Which I find, I mean, I don't think that's the best way to deal with a situation. Yeah. Um, and yeah, it, it, that kind of part of the Ramayana really, you know, stucks in my maw. Uh, you know, it's, it's something that I have, a, I still grapple with. Yeah, it and, seems like, uh, yeah, she's held up to like an impossible standard. Yeah. And uh, so, uh, and the at the end of the Ramayana, you know, when, when Ram and Sita uh, meet again, uh, because Ram has, uh, you know, and, and there are these two children, Love and Kush, that Sita has given birth to. And at that point, Ram seeing Sita again, says, you know, come back to Ayodhya and be the queen there. And Sita says, and but prove your chastity again. This is something he, he asks for. And she says, uh, I prove my, my, myself by if I have been, you know, uh, honorable or whatever, if I'm untouched, whatever, if I'm pure, then let the earth open up and claim me. And so that's what happens. Um, she chooses. She doesn't choose to go back with Ram. She chooses to go back into her earth, the, the mother, and that is her vindication. Uh, 
that's a really interesting end to that story. Do you have a favorite character in the book besides Sita? I um, very much like the character of Chudata. Uh, the uh, Rakshasi, the, the, the Rakshasi princess of Lanka, who is Sita's jailer in, uh, or, and, and also her companion and her friend and her confidant in Lanka. And she has the power of prophecy. So she's able to see that Ram will come and he will rescue Sita and there will be this great war fought. And that consoles Sita, that her husband will come for her and rescue her. But at the same time, um, Trijata also sees the destruction of her people. And uh, even though she knows what side's going to win, she chooses to remain with the losing side. And uh, I think that's a really, for me, that's a really interesting character. That's a really interesting perspective. What is a, just just for the benefit of the listeners, what is a Rakshasa? Because I could see a lot of people not understanding what that is. Uh, so it's sort of a, a demon um, in and, and the... Uh, the people of Lanka, who Ram goes to fight, uh, who are led by Ravana, the, who, the king who has abducted Sita, they are considered rakshasas, uh, rakshasas and rakshasis, um, you know, demons who live in Lanka. And so you did work on a thriller book based on the Ramayana. What was that called again? The Missing Queen. Okay, so what is the like the the context of the of the thriller that you worked on? Is it like is it a full length novel? Yes, it is a full length novel. Yeah. Okay, so is it does it take place in like contemporary society or does it take place long ago? Like, kind of, what's the novel about? Uh, it sort of imagines that the Ramayana has happened in India in contemporary India, uh, but India is Ayodhya, um, and. Uh, uh, Sita has is no longer part is no longer in Ayodhya, and so there's a journalist who is curious to find out what Sita's side of the story is and starts asking all the wrong questions, and um, finds that as she pulls the story, she gets led to murkier and murkier and uh, accounts that really question her understanding of of what happened in this great war, and uh, so she meets. Um, Angad, uh, who is this prince of the prince of the Vanars, and she's told multiple versions of the story, different versions of the story. She meets Surpana, she goes to Lanka to meet Surpanaka, who is um, a Rakshasi princess. And, and in this version, Surpanaka is uh, the leader of a, sort of a terrorist party that's fighting for freedom of Lanka. And so she tells her a different version of the of the story that really uh, changes the narrative. And um, she, but most of all, this this journalist is curious to find Sita's version. If if this war has been victorious, if Ram has returned to Ayodhya victorious, why isn't his wife there? So um, for me, I think it the the Ramayana since is still you know we, one of the terms in India and that's often used in Indian politics today is Ram Rajya, uh, the rule of Ram, and it's sort of this ideal golden age that it's looked up to because that was when things were functioning properly. That was when law was had. That was a great and glorious time. That was a golden age. And so that that is evoked in politics, in elections. And um, I find it really problematic because there are all these people who are excluded from that. Sita is excluded. She cannot be part of this Ram Raja. She is banished from it. Uh, there's another story of um, a, uh, a shud- uh, you know a Shudra who's coming from the lowest caste, uh, Shambuka who aspires to be an ascetic, which is the highest caste. And uh, he starts to pray, but because this disrupts the order and the balance of society, so he must be killed. 
and so these all of these stories are really disturb you know you have to stick to your caste and to your caste dharma and ram rajya that is the only way that law functions it's almost totalitarian everyone has to stick to the positions they are in if they deviate from that then or or if they critique that then there is no space for them and i think in some ways in contemporary india um we we run the risk or the danger of that uh if we evoke that idea of ram rajya then we live in a caste based society we live in a uh society that excludes minorities that excludes women you know you're you're not alone there um around the world right now it seems like too many places are saying back then when we were so great and so um that's a trend that i think that a lot of places in the world right now are grappling with including where i live um in the united states so that uh that's a little point of comparison that i would like to point out do you do you have any other projects in the works right now related to um like indian mythology or epic literature i uh, i have a um, a work of historical fiction which is based on um the sangamera in south india uh, we again in india it's very interesting but what we know of history is really dominated uh, by the colonial period um and by also uh, uh you know what what happened in north india where i come from south india but we ourselves in south india are not so so familiar with our own histories and um, the sangamera is a very interesting period it's called the sangamera because it was a period of of a literary renaissance and uh, i've become very fascinated by the figure of one of the writers of the sangamera who was a prince who renounced his claim to the throne and became an ascetic and then penned an erotic epic that featured two women in primary roles so uh, i became very interested by this character and my next book has to deal with him and his story excellent sam arney where can people find you online if they want to know more about your work um they can come to my website uh, it's samarney.com Uh, and um you can you know there's a bio and, and stuff about me there Excellent. Well, thank you so much for taking this time this evening to talk to me about the Ramayana and Sita and uh thank you so much for coming on Classical Ideas. Thank you so much, Greg. It's been a pleasure to be in here. Classical Ideas is produced by me, Greg Soden. Music on Classical Ideas is performed and composed by Derek Stribing. You can find his music at www.wearewarmmusic.com. If you would like to support this show, please subscribe or leave a rating in iTunes, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, or anywhere you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening.